Hello, you're listening to the Science of Everything podcast, episode 45, Vision, and I'm your host, James Fodor. In this episode, we're going to look at human vision, going right from the eye through to the computational analysis of visual input in the brain. So, this episode is... The, the content that I have for this episode is going to be far more than I can fit into a single podcast, so I'm thinking this is going to go over two, possibly even three episodes, uh, depending on how we go. So I don't know exactly how much we'll get through in this first episode, but we'll uh, get as far as we can. So what I'll do is I'll give an overview of everything that I plan to discuss uh, over the, the series of episodes, and then we'll get as far as we go in this one and uh, pick up where we left off in the next one. So first I'm going to talk about the eye, uh, the anatomy of the eye, how images are formed, the visual field, and after that we're going to move on to talking about the retina, which, I mean, is part of the eye, but it's where the actual rods and cones that do the actual transduction of light into neural inputs that the brain can actually understand. So it's kind of the crucial part of the eye, so we'll sort of consider it separately or in its own section. We'll look at uh, rhodopsin, how phototransduction occurs, the bipolar cells, ganglion cells, and some of the other cells that are found in the retina. Then we'll look at the output of the retina uh, from the optic nerve leading through the optic chiasm and into the lateral geniculate nucleus, which is the first region of the brain that the visual uh, input goes to. After that, we'll talk about the primary visual cortex, or V1, the different layers within V1 and cell types, ocular dominance columns, orientation columns, and some other interesting things that occur there. After that, we'll look at some of the higher levels of processing that occur in in various other regions of the brain, including V2 and V3, the MT and MST regions, V4, which uh, has a lot to do with color, the uh, inferior temporal cortex, interparietal sulcus, and some other regions uh, that are of relevance. And finally, uh, we'll uh, conclude with a look at sort of the more abstract computational analysis that the brain does, specifically how it takes the inputs that it receives from the retina and and transforms those into visual perceptions and how it recognizes objects and uh, detects motion and, and depth and things like that. So at the outset, I think it's important to say that many of the issues that I'm going to discuss are still not uh, completely understood. In fact, many of them are very poorly understood, especially the, the further I go on. I mean, the stuff I talk about, about the anatomy of the eye and the retina and so on, that's pretty well established. The the structure of the visual cortex and the lateral geniculate nucleus, that's eh, pretty well known, although there are still a lot of questions there. High-level processing computational analysis is still quite poorly understood, and all we've got largely at the moment are sort of plausible hypotheses and various competing theories. Uh, backed up by a certain amount of computational or anatomical evidence, but we'll get to that. Uh, so, so just be warned that uh, it gets uh, murkier the, the further we progress through the uh, uh, through through the brain and the processing cycle. In terms of recommended pre-listening for this episode or series of episodes, we're going to cover a lot of ground. So uh, many of the episodes that I've talked about, uh, where I've talked previously about issues of biology and uh, light or cells, uh, will all be relevant. In particular, I strongly recommend episode 10 on the cell, episode 18, Biochemistry Basics, and episode 38, Neurons and Synapses. Episode 38 in particular is essentially vital, because I'm not going to go into detail about what neurons are and so on. I'm going to assume that you have a background in that. Episode 32, Light and Optics, will also be somewhat useful uh, for the for the first part about the eye and, and image formation. Okay, so, before any, uh, without any further ado, let's get into it. So, first of all, I'm going to uh, present a very uh, gross-level overview of uh, image processing and the uh, overall schema of how visual information is first detected and then uh, processed by various parts of the brain. So, I like to divide this into uh, about four main categories. Well, like I suppose five main, four or five main categories. First of all is the eye. So this is literally the eyeball itself and the lens and um, cornea and all that sort of stuff. That's where the light first enters essentially the body and is uh, first uh, formed into an image. But in the eye itself, no visual processing occurs. It just forms an image. The second stage is the retina. Now, the retina is actually part of the eye, but I think it's useful to separate it. The retina includes the rods and cones that actually detect light and convert it into uh, neuronal signals that the brain can understand. Uh, There's uh, some interesting biochemistry and uh, elements we'll look at there in terms of how that occurs. The third level is the initial processing, or the the very first processing of visual information in the brain. This includes the transmission of the visual information from the retina into the brain via the optic nerve and the optic chiasm, and into its first sort of processing location in the brain, which is called the lateral geniculate nucleus, or LGN, and we'll talk more about that later. So that whole bringing information into the brain and getting to the LGN, that's level three, or stage three. Stage four is uh, processing in the primary visual cortex, or V1, uh, where the information is, is taken after it goes to the LGN. And finally, high-level processing in, in uh, 
cortical areas, which are basically um, cortical areas which perform high-level processing after the information has already been taken to V1. So I'm presenting this as kind of a linear process where, you know, the light comes in, the eye, it's uh, detected by the retina, it's passed into the brain, goes to the LGN, goes to V1, then goes to the higher levels. It's not quite that simple because there are especially... Um, from the V1 to the LGN and from higher level areas back to V1, there are sort of backward-directed projections of axons that go forward, like from V1 to V2, for example, and then projections go back from V2 to V1, or forward projections from the LGN to V1 and backward projections from V1 back to the LGN. So it's it's not quite so simple and linear as I'm presenting it, but um, for sort of a first-level analysis, I think that's a useful way to think about it. So just to recap, the eye, uh, light comes in the eye, is um, transferred into... It's transferred into electrical signals by the retina, is moved into the brain via the optic nerve and optic chiasm, and uh, is first processed by the lateral geniculate nucleus. Then it is transferred to the primary visual cortex, which is called V1. And finally, after that, it's uh, progressively processed or, or, or um, moved along to higher cortical areas like V2 and, and V4 and so on, which we'll talk about later. So keep those five basic categories in mind as, as, I, uh, as we're moving through this uh, series of episodes. But we need to start at the beginning, which is uh, a good place to start, and we'll talk about the anatomy of the eye. So, the adult human eye is only about 2.5 centimeters in diameter, so, which is actually quite small if you consider how important it is, because um, you know vision is obviously the primary sense that, that humans rely on to interact with the world. So given how important it is, it's actually quite small. The eye is um, kind of like an onion, really. It has a bunch of layers, and you strip out the first layer, and then you can look at the second layer, and uh, and then you can sort of move, move further and further in as you peel out the layers. But we'll, we'll start from the outside and work our way in. Basically, I mean, the eye is roughly spherical. It's not completely spherical, although it does have a sort of a dimple that comes out the front. So it's like a... Imagine it as a, a sphere with a sort of a, a, um, a sort of a hemispherical protrusion poking out the front. Uh, if, if you sort of close your eyes and, uh, and touch your eyelids, you'll sort of feel that uh, sort of bump in the front of your eye. That bump there is called the cornea, and that's where we're going to start. The cornea is at the very front of the eye. It's made up of several layers of transparent connective and epithelial tissue. If you're not sure what I mean by that, check out episode 25 on tissues, organs, and systems. But th- these tissues are transparent, so which is important, obviously, because if the light couldn't pass through the cornea, then we wouldn't be able to see anything. Uh, the cornea is curved, which assists in the focusing of light. And this is important to understand how an image is formed, and I'll get to that in a moment. So just remember that the cornea is curved, and that means it can help in image formation. Exactly how it does that, we'll come back to. So behind the cornea is a sort of a roughly hemispherical shape called the anterior chamber, uh, which basically just means like the, the chamber in front. Um, and it's filled with transparent fluid called aqueous humor. Now, this is a little interesting thing here. Aqueous humor is really quite a stupid name, in my opinion, because it's basically just Latin for water fluid. Aqueous meaning water, and humor just means like bodily fluid or just fluid generally. So, I mean, it's not a very descriptive name, but I guess it suits the purpose. Basically, all this fluid does is help to maintain the structure of the eye and also helps to provide nutrients for the cornea sitting in front and the lens which sits behind. There's another type of uh, sort of watery fluid that, that's in the eye, which is called the vitreous humor. So don't get those two confused. We'll talk about vitreous humor a little bit later, but the aqueous humor is at the front, just behind the cornea, and the vitreous humor sits uh, back further into the eye, and we'll, we'll talk about it later. Now, uh, just behind the aqueous humor, or, you know, the anterior chamber, which contains the aqueous humor, is the lens, which is also transparent. It's a biconvex structure, which essentially means that it's sort of like uh, so, so convex means it basically pokes outwards, you know, like someone's belly. It pokes outwards. If it's biconvex, it pokes outwards like that on both sides. So th- th- that's what biconvex means. And again, th- that shape is crucial because it means it can help focus the light to form an image. And uh, we talked a bit about this on the episode on, um, what was it, t- 32 on light and optics. And uh, I'll talk more about that in a moment when we cover image formation. But again, the, the, the shape of the lens is crucial for image formation. And the fact that it's transparent is also crucial because otherwise the light wouldn't be able to pass through it. The lens is quite elastic, although it's, uh, it's still fairly firm, but, but elastic. It, it's mostly made of transparent proteins called crystalline. It's actually pretty cool, given that they're, they're sort of fairly strong, but also completely transparent. The lens is kept in position by what's called the ciliary body, which is comprised of ciliary muscles and ciliary processes. So we won't go into the details of what those are, but basically that there's muscles and tendons which uh, connect to the lens, help it to keep it in position, and also are able to pull on the lens in order to alter the shape of the lens. And altering the shape of the lens is crucial, as we'll talk about in a moment in the image formation, uh, because in order to focus on light coming from different distances away, it's necessary to change the shape of the lens. So these uh, ciliary muscles and ciliary processes help with changing the shape of the lens. Just sitting in front of the lens is the iris. The iris is the coloured part of the eye. 
eye color just refers to the, the color of the iris. It's a circular structure which essentially sort of uh, surrounds the, the lens. It's responsible for controlling the diameter and size of the pupil, well, the pupils, uh, but pupil in, in one eye. Uh, the, the pupil is essentially just the hole, really, or the space inside the middle of the iris. So if you look at someone's eye, there's the white of the eye, which is the sclera, we'll get to that. Then you'll see a coloured sort of circular disc, which is the iris, uh, that has the colour. And inside that, you'll see a dark circle, which is called the pupil. The Really, the only purpose of the iris is to change in size, either get bigger or get smaller, uh, such that the size of the pupil changes. And basically, this is done so that we can see in both uh, light environments and in dark environments. In dark environments, you need more light in order to sort of see, and so therefore the pupil needs to increase in size, uh, to dilate, in order to let more light in. And so the... um. Basically, the iris is made of a bunch of muscles which can um, contract or relax in order to change the size uh, of the iris and therefore change the size of the pupil. The pupil is dark, basically, because what you're seeing there is not any particular structure. Like, the, the, the iris is a structure which is located just behind, uh, basically, the cornea, and, and the cornea is transparent, so you can't see it, but if you see light reflected off the front of someone's eyes, you're, you're probably seeing it reflected off the cornea. Uh, but inside the, the pupil, you're not really seeing anything. What you're seeing is basically the, the retina, which is um, sort of way back. You're seeing the back of the eyeball, basically, but you can't really see it because it's, uh, I mean, there's not very much light gets out of there. Basically, the, the light goes into the eyeball and then scatters around and much of it's absorbed by the various pigments in there, and so not much of it comes out again. However, if you flash a very bright light in there, uh, in, in, well, in someone's eye, then you'll see the back of the retina, and you'll see blood vessels, and it looks a bit red uh, because of the um, the blood that's there. And essentially, this is the cause of the red eye phenomenon in flash photography. When people's eyes go red, it's because basically the the light is reflecting off of the blood vessels and some of the other things uh, on the retina, uh, and coming it's reflected back through the pupil, and then you can see it. You can't normally see that because the light's not bright enough. Okay, so that's the iris, that's the pupil, that's the cornea, just located behind the lens, which, remember, is behind the iris, which in turn is behind the cornea, is uh, the, basically the cavity that contains the majority of the volume of the eye. In this cavity is located, uh, this cavity contains, as I mentioned before, vitreous humor. And this is a, a watery substance. I mean, it's a solution. It's got, like, various proteins and stuff in it. It's mostly water. They're, like, 99% water by volume. It contains very few cells. And like vitri... Uh, sorry, like aqueous humor, its purpose is pretty much just to maintain the structure of the eye. Um, but, but this um, vitreous humor is... comprises the overwhelming majority of the, the internal volume of the eye. The stuff that I talked about before with the cornea and the uh, aqueous humor the and the lens and the iris, that, that's all up the front in a relatively small area. You know, that, that bit... The protrudes out the front. Most of the volume of the eye is taken up by the vitreous humor. One final thing that I need to talk about, which I mentioned before, is the sclera, which is the white of the eye. Now, th this is opaque, which is why you can see it, why it's white. Uh, it's not transparent like the lens and the, uh, the various fluids are. Basically, it's made of uh, elastic collagen fibers. Again, why you can't, which is why you can't see through it. It's a protective outer layer of the eye. So basically, you know, the 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 eye is more or less uh, spherical. The outer surface of the eye is covered by this protective elastic tissue, which is called the sclera, and and it looks white. Now you can see the sclera in the white of the eye, sort of surrounding the iris. Um, that's that same material actually surrounds all of the eye, like going around right to the back and the sides and so on. You obviously just can't see that because it's covered by the eyelid and so forth. If you pull an out, the eye out of someone's socket, though, you would see that. There's uh, essentially an opening in the sclera, or a, a region of the uh, a region of the front of the eye that the sclera doesn't cover, and that's where the cornea pokes out, and uh, the, the, where the light goes in. If the sclera completely covered the eye, then obviously no light would be able to get in. Essentially, the, the eye is just like a big ball with covered by the sclera, very, at, the, at the very front of it, you've got a, a, um, the cornea which sort of pokes out a bit, uh, and that the cornea itself is transparent. And behind that, you've got the the lens and the iris uh, changing size to let to let various amounts of light in. And the light actually travels through the lens, uh, through the pupil, and uh, then go, then uh, travels through the transparent vitreous humor in the the main interior uh, volume of the eye. Okay, so that's enough on the anatomy of the eye. Now let's talk a little bit about image formation. So how does this bunch of tissue actually form an image? So recall from the uh, optics episode that we did that we did that light or stuff that we see is just electromagnetic radiation. So it's just essentially fluctuations in electromagnetic fields. That's essentially what it is. Somehow the eye has to detect this and transform it into neural signals, action potentials, which is really all the brain can directly understand. It does this via the 
rods and cones located in the retina, which is at the back of the eye, and we'll get to that in a moment. But at a broader level, how does the eye form an image? Because if the eye did not somehow form an image, we could potentially still detect light and colours and so on, but it would just be all a, a blurred jumble. Like if you set up a projector but don't focus it properly, you can still see stuff there, but it's it's just it's just blurry nonsense. You have to form a, a clear image in order to be able to sort of see anything of interest. The lens on the cornea are the main parts of the eye that are responsible for doing that. Their task is essentially to, f to, to focus the light that comes in in such a way that it forms a clear image on the retina, and then the retina gets to actually processing that image and turning it into neural signals. But how does that image formation actually occur? Well, uh, remember refraction? From earlier episodes we've done, this is when a, 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 um, a wave changes its direction as a result of a change in the speed with which that wave travels. Now, light travels always at the same speed in a vacuum. However, light does not always travel at the same speed in different materials. So, in particular, light travels uh, through the cornea and through the lens and through the aqueous and vitreous humors at, at different speeds than it travels through air. And so, as it travels through these uh, tissues, it is bent. Well, the humors aren't really tissues, but those substances, the light is bent. That's called refraction. Now, in particular, most of the bending occurs at the cornea and the lens, so I'll talk mostly about those. Remember I described the lens as a biconvex uh, structure? This means that it sort of pokes out in both directions. Not like a sphere, it's sort of like a pointed sphere or like a football shape standing upright, something like that. Hopefully you can visualize what I'm talking about. A magnifying glass has, has the same basic shape. Essentially more rounded or more poking out or more curved the lens is, the more biconvex it is, basically, um, as opposed to more flat. That the more uh, rounded it is, the more it will bend light, and therefore the greater its refractive power is the word we use. The greater the power of the lens, and the closer the image will be, the the closer the image formed by the lens will be to the actual lens. So the way image formation works is that you will have light coming to you, let's say coming to the lens from all different places in the visual field. The visual field is just the region you can see from the eye, um, or from both your eyes. In order for an image to be formed, what you have to do is focus the light, or arrange it such that all of the light from one location in the visual field ends up at a single location on the retina, or more generally just at a single location where you're forming the image. Now that might sort of sound trivial, but generally that won't be the case. Generally, like for example, if you just look at the walls, the walls look white even though all of the light from, say, the room that you're sitting in is being, ref is being um, reflected from those walls, like all of the light's there, but you don't get an image because light from the lamp, light from the computer, light from the bed, light from the desk, light from whatever, are all hitting all parts of the wall. And so what you see is just a jumbled mess, which you just interpret as like a color or whatever. You don't see an actual image. In order to get an image, you need it to be so that the light from one particular key on your keyboard falls on one particular part of the wall, and then a light from the next key on your keyboard falls on the part of the wall just next to that, and so on. So basically you get a, a clear one-to-one -one mapping of light from the stuff in the real world to light to wherever you're forming the image. In case of the retina, what you need to have is light from a, a particular point in the visual field needs to all converge to a single point on the retina. If there was no lens in the eye and no cornea, then that wouldn't happen. So you would just be able to detect color and light, basically, light and dark. You wouldn't be able to see an image. In order for an image to form, you need to have a lens. But more specific than that, the lens has to ensure that it focuses the light so that you get um, one uh, one object in the real world being focused at one point on the retina. That has to occur. So the focusing has to occur so that the image occurs right on the retina. It won't do if the image will uh, is formed just in front of the retina or just behind the retina because then at the retina itself, the image will be blurry, and this is essentially like if you have a, a projector and you just, uh, you know, there's often like a knob or something like that where you change the um, the focal length of the lens or whatever that's uh, controlling it. Uh, if you turn it a bit one way, then it gets blurry because the image is formed in front of the wall, and so you can't see it properly. And then if you turn it the other way, it also gets blurry because the image is now being formed behind the wall, and so is, is blurry again. You need to have it just right, and the lens is um basically pulled into just the right shape by the various muscles and, and ligaments in the ciliary body surrounding it. The lens is pulled into just the right shape so that the whatever object you're viewing, it, it, um, you can focus that light and have the image appear right on the retina. People who have various types of defects with their lens, uh, basically the, the two most common ones are myopia and hyperopia, or short-sightedness and long-sightedness, long basically th their lens is incapable 
of changing shape properly so that the the um, in myopia I think if I'm getting it right the image forms in front of the retina and in hyperopia it forms behind the retina or I may have got that the wrong way around the uh, the details don't matter too much for this episode the point is you have to the, the the lens has to form the image right on the retina and if you uh if you focus the light too much or too little and if the lens can't be exactly the right shape it won't form on the retina and you get a blurry image and sort of we wear glasses or contact lenses to basically provide extra or, or to alter the way that the light is refracted by the lens and therefore sort of offset that. Uh, I mentioned that the cornea refracts light as well. The cornea, however, has a fixed refractive power. It can't change shape or composition. So whenever we want to uh, change what we're looking at or or change the viewing distance of our eyes, uh, that's all done by the lens. So it's crucial that we have at least one uh, refractive body that's able to change its shape. If they were both fixed like the cornea, we'd essentially only be able to view objects clearly at, at a fixed distance. You know, 10 meters away, everything would be clear, but everything closer than that and further away than that would be blurry. And this is essentially what happens, especially to older people, because their lenses tend to tend to become stiffer, and so they're more brittle, and, and it's harder to them, for them to reshape. So they can see things clearly if it's just the right distance. Closer than that, they can't focus properly. Further away, they can't focus properly. Okay, so that's how image formation occurs. So remember, image formation is just about getting an image on the retina. It's not... It doesn't say anything about how that image is actually uh, interpreted by the brain or how it's actually even transferred to the brain. So far, we haven't said anything about the brain. We've just said something about how the light how the uh, light comes into the eye and we get an image from that. Now we've got to figure out a way of capturing that image and transforming it into electrical neural signals that the, that the brain can later interpret. Just before we get there, there's a few extra concepts that we uh, I want to cover. Uh, the first is the visual field. I mentioned this before. The visual field is simply the area in space, well, in front of us, that we perceive when the eyes are fixed at a static position looking straight ahead. So if you move your eyes from side to side, you can see additional, or up and down, you can see additional things. Uh, you, can, you, know, you can see areas that you couldn't see if you just were looking straight ahead. But that doesn't count as the visual field. The visual field is just, I stare straight ahead, what can I see? The degree of resolution varies a lot in different parts of the visual field. So at peripheral vision, you know, to the side and up and down, the resolution is fairly low. It's hard to see things there. We only have really good resolution for a very small uh, region, actually, at the at the very center of our uh, visual field. But the visual field is everything you can see. So if you hold your hand in front of you and then move it to the right, uh, but, but make sure you keep your uh, gaze fixed straight ahead, so don't follow your hand with your eye, just look straight ahead and then move your eye to the right, you'll see you can, you can still see your hand, but it gets blurrier and blurrier. It's sort of harder to make out. And eventually, if you can move your arm around far enough, you won't be able to see your hand anymore. That's because it's moved out of your visual field. The human visual field is roughly 180 degrees um, so, so forward. But basically, if you if you imagine a, a circle sort of projecting out with you at the center, you can see the 180 de- the, a full 180 degrees of that circle, obviously forwards fr- from your perspective. The 180 degrees behind that, you can't see. So that's actually quite impressive in the sense that we can see a, a full, fully half of a 360 degree field. This is why on computer games, for example, it's often it's often more difficult to have a, a awareness of your surroundings because you can generally only see like something like 60 or 90 degrees, which is a much more narrow vision. Or you, you'll get this if you have to wear like a helmet or something that restricts your peripheral vision. It's very annoying because we're used to this very wide field of vision. Up and down, it's something like uh, 60 degrees up and down, so a total of 180 degrees. Uh, sorry, 120 degrees uh, up and down. So we can see quite uh, quite a large area actually, just without even moving our eyes or head. The majority of the visual field is shared by both eyes. That is, both of the both of your eyes see that region. Uh, roughly 120 of the 180 degrees from side to side. However, the remaining information is only detected by a single eye. You can easily tell this if you um, just observe your visual field with both eyes and then close one eye and, and see what you lose. See what you can no longer observe. What you can no longer see was the part of the visual field that was only uh, visible to one eye. And then if you close the other eye, you'll you'll lose the part of the visual field that was only visible to that eye. And if you subtract out those two parts, the part that was visible just to the left eye and the part that was just visible to the right eye, you'll be left with the part of the visual field that was visible to both eyes. That's This is called the binocular visual field. Both eyes, monocular visual field, just one eye. And this, this all this stuff about the visual field will become important later on uh, when we talk about the um, how information is, is uh, how, how visual information is processed in, the, in V1 and so on. And we talk about retinotopic mapping, which is very interesting. Uh, final concept that we want to talk about that I want to cover is the fovea. Now, the fovea is a region of the retina, so I guess it's slightly dodgy I'm talking about this now because I haven't actually really discussed the retina yet, but it relates to visual uh, acuity and visual field that I was talking about, so I just want to cover it here. Visual acuity is just like what we can see and how uh, accurately we can see it, the resolution and so on. Visual acuity is greatest for a particular region of our visual field, and that region of the visual field corresponds to the light that falls on a particular part of the retina. The retina is just basically like all of the area on the back of the eyeball. Um, so you know how the eyeball is just like a, a sphere. 
on the outer side, uh, outer layer, it's covered by the the opaque sclera. While on the inner layer, it's covered by it's covered by what's called the retina, which is where the uh, photoreceptor cells are actually located. There's a particular region on this retina, which is only like one millimeter wide, so it's very small, that has a particularly high resolution, and this is called the fovea. So when you are reading, basically what you're doing is constantly shifting your gaze from one word to the next, or from a small group of words to another, and you're doing that so as to direct the light onto your fovea, or you know, fovea in both eyes. You can't read unless the light is falling on your fovea, or maybe just very close to the fovea. You, you try staring at a word and then reading a word even like two, two or th- maybe, maybe three or four lines down, or you know, like ten words across or something like that. You, you can't do it. You can see the words there, but you can't read it because it's too blurry. You, you'll, you'll find you'll have to move your eyes down to that word. Th- this shows us that the fovea is, is very small. Only a very small portion of the visual field has sufficiently high resolution to allow us to read. And so what we generally do is constantly shift our gaze when we're looking, not just when we're reading, but when we're looking at anything. We, we look at, uh, we're constantly moving our eyes around so that we can get the light from different parts of the object to fall on the fovea and therefore see it in high resolution. There's no intrinsic reason why the human visual field, if we had enough eyes or cameras or whatever, could not cover the full 360 degrees and could not cover that uh, with the high degree of resolution and acuity that we have from the fovea. So you, you could imagine how accurately we would be able to see if we could see 360 degrees. Uh, with, with fovea level resolution. It's hard to imagine, but if you think about it, that there's no reason why, you know, a visual field stops over here. Well, why couldn't it just extend back a bit further? And why couldn't it have high resolution? Obviously, with our brains, we wouldn't be able to process all that information, but um, I think it's an interesting thing to think about. Uh, the fovea is fascinating because it only comprises 1% of the total area of the retina, but it takes up over 50% of the visual cortex in the brain, which is where, the, where the, this information is processed. So 1% of the input takes up 50% of the processing, and that's essentially just because of the, the huge quantity, uh, the huge resolution, the, huge, the very high resolution that, that that region has. Okay, so that's the uh, visual field and fovea covered. Uh, And that concludes our discussion of the first of our uh, five elements of vision, the eye, and talking about image formation and the anatomy and so on. Now we're moving on to our second element, which is technically still part of the eye, but I'm going to talk about it separately, the retina. Now, I've already... I mean, I've already said what the retina is. It's just a layer of light-sensitive tissue that lines the inner surface of the eye. The retina contains the photoreceptor cells that actually transduce incident photons into electrical signals. Transduce just basically means like transform. Incident just means that the photons are falling onto, like that they're literally the photoreceptor cells on the retina. So, incident photons, they come through the cornea and refract it a bit, then they travel through the lens and are refracted some more. An image forms on the retina, and uh, the incident photons that are falling onto the retina need to be converted to electrical signals, which the brain can then process. The retina is what does this job of trans, uh, transducing the photons into electrical signals. Okay, so I keep talking about these photoreceptor cells. These are the cells that actually do the transducing. They take a photon, basically, and use that information to produce electrical signals that the brain can understand. How do they do that? This is uh, one of the, I think, really cool parts of vision, understanding how we go from photons, like fluctuations in the electromagnetic field, into uh, electrical signals in the brain, action potentials. How does that happen? Well, it happens, the first part of that happening is essentially in the rods and the cones. Rods and cones, what am I talking about? There are two fundamental types of photoreceptor cells. A photoreceptor cell is just the generic name for any cell that, that does this job of transducing the, the photon signal. But there are two basic types of them in the human eye, and they're called basically by their shape. Rods, which are sort of um, vertically shaped, and they, well, they look like rods, and cones, because, well, they look like cones. So rods and cones. It, it's You may have heard of these before. It's useful to get a sort of a, a quick feel for the difference between these things. So let me just spit out a few properties of how these differ. Rods, there are many more rods than cones. So rods are sort of like uh, much more popular. So I think about 90% of the photoreceptors are rods, um, or even more than that. Yeah, so the human retina contains 120 million rods and only 6 million cones, so uh, more than 90%. Rods are somewhat larger than cones. Rods are also much more sensitive to a very small amount of light. In fact, uh, well, I've, I've heard that human rods are capable of detecting even a single photon, although other sources have said like six photons, but I mean, much of a much just really suffice it to say, a rod is capable of um, being triggered by as few as one, maybe a few photons, which is still a very small amount. Cones, on the other hand, require a very much larger number of photons in order to actually produce a signal. So cones aren't very useful in dim light. So whenever we're seeing in, in relatively dark light, you're basically just using rods. The cones aren't very useful. On the other hand, when we're in bright light, like daytime, the rods quickly get saturated, and so uh, I'll discuss what I mean by that, but essentially they become useless, and we're just seeing with our cones. So cones are for bright light, uh, rods are for dark light. Also, cones are the only things that can see in colour. 
because essentially there's only one type of rod, and it's sensitive to electromagnetic radiation over the, the visual um, region of the spectrum. It's occurred to me that I haven't actually done an episode talking about electromagnetic radiation in some detail, uh, but basically electromagnetic radiation can come in different frequencies or wavelengths. Those are more or less the same thing. Well, they're not the same thing, but they go together, so we'll just use, just use the terms interchangeably for now. And different wavelengths correspond to different colors, or that's how we see them anyway. We Humans can only observe a very narrow range of these wavelengths, and this is called the visual spectrum. There are many other, like infrared and ultraviolet and stuff like that, that we can't see, uh, but, but that still uh, carries energy and so on. And it's all light. Um, it's all electromagnetic radiation, but we can only see a very narrow range of it. Rods are basically sensitive right across the visual spectrum. Cones, on the other hand, well, there are actually three types of cones. But don't get confused. Photoreceptor cells, there are rods and cones. Under rods, well, there's just rods. There's only one type of rods. Under cones, there are three different types of cones. And uh, what are these called? Like L-type, M-type, and S-type. But I'm not so concerned about those names. Basically, they correspond to... to uh, The difference between the different types of cones is just that they have slightly different molecules in them, or um, photoreceptor molecules, which are sensitive to slightly different wavelengths of light. And this corresponds to basically slightly different colours of light. So L-type cones um, respond most to reddish type of colours, long wavelengths, so hence L. M-type cells respond most intensely to sort of a greenish colour, which is, has a medium wave- wavelength, hence M. And the, the third type of cells, S-type cells, um, respond most heavily to blue, uh, bluish, bluish type colours, which has a short wavelength and therefore is, is called S. Uh, but basically, so the three different types of cones correspond to red, green, and blue. And if those colours sound familiar, it's because they're essentially the primary colours. With those three colours, you can form all other colours. And it's no coincidence those are the primary colours. It's basically because those are the, the three different types of photos or cones that we have in our retina. So we can detect only those three different colours. And other colours that we can see are only going to come out of a combination of those three. By the way, white is formed by a combination of all of those colours, and black is just an absence of light. So those are kind of sort of the extremes of the spectrum. They're not colours in themselves. Now, it's important to understand the three different types of cones don't only respond to that type of light. I, I was... I said that they, they respond most to that type of light. Basically, what you can do is, you, like, you can draw a curve, like a bell-shaped curve, which means, which represents, the height of the curve represents how much does that cell respond, and the, the sort of horizontal axis represents the different wavelengths or frequencies of light. The peak of the curve tells you the, the frequency that generates the most amount of response or most excitation from this type of cell. So red type, red cones peak in the red, in the red region of the spectrum, the green cells peak in the green, and the blue cells peak in the blue. But they respond to other colors as well, just not as much. So that's, that's the key difference. Color blindness basically results when you have, uh, when you're missing one of those cones, or one of those types of cones, sorry, or even two of those types of cones, um, or, or you just have a deficit in the number of those cones. You might have a few of them, but not enough to generate the full spectrum of the color. And also, just on color blindness, it's important to understand that color blindness is not the same thing as total absence of color vision. Total absence of color vision is very, very rare. It's called achromatopsia, and that would be very rare. Color blindness, on the other hand, which is just inability to distinguish some types of colors, is much more common. I think so, like 5% or something like that of males have color blindness. It might even be more. It's more common in males for some reason. I, I don't know if that's understood why. So yeah, color blindness basically comes from lack of some types of the cones, but not complete absence of them. Complete absence would mean you could only see in uh, shades of gray, and that's very, very rare. Now, I still haven't explained how the rods and the cones actually detect the light. I've just explained the different types of them. So how do they do it? Well, rods and cones are basically neurons. So remember that they have a cell body, the soma, they have they have dendrites. Well, photoreceptor cells don't really have much in the way of dendrites, but uh, which take the input in, and they have uh, axons, which are uh, uh, sort of the output part of the cell. Rods and cones have this sort of extra part, which is basically what makes them photoreceptors, what makes them different from regular neurons. And basically, these are w- these are what give the rods and the cones their name. The rod is basically just like a, an upward protrusion of the membrane above the, the above the soma, above the cell body, and it basically just has a stack of membranes inside it. So remember, the the um the outside exterior of the cell is surrounded by the cell membrane, but within that you can have uh, sort of subsidiary membranes. Vesicles are an example of that, where you have a, a membrane inside the cell surrounding some, you know, like a neurotransmitter or something, or some other proteins. These membranes that I'm talking about uh, are not vesicles. They're bigger than vesicles, or I think generally v- bigger than vesicles. They're kind of pancake-shaped. It's it's basically like a whole bunch of pancakes stacked on top of each other. And that's why it's a cone, because it's... Uh, sorry, that's why it's a rod, because basically it literally looks like a rod that points upwards from the soma, and then inside that rod is just a stack of these internal membranes that kind of look like pancakes, and there's a bit of a gap in between each of them. The cone has a similar structure, except that the membranes are sort of like that. They get smaller as you move upwards, and so hence the cone shape. 
uh, and it's a bit, sh- it's a bit, it's not quite as tall as the rod, but it's a similar type of thing. You've got a bunch of membranes inside the overall cell membrane. What's the point of these membranes or these internal membrane discs? Well, embedded in, uh, in the membrane of these discs are the actual photoreceptor molecules. And these photoreceptor molecules are what does the actual uh, transduction. So the cones and the rods have slightly different types of photoreceptor molecules. Uh, the cones have a molecule that's called photopsin, and the rods have a molecule that's called rhodopsin. So, I mean, they have very similar names, I mean that's because they're very similar molecules. They're almost exactly the same, really. They're just slightly different. And uh, remember, photopsin is found in all the cones, but what makes the cones different from each other, because remember, there's three different varieties corresponding to three different colours, it's just because the conformation of photopsin is slightly different in those different uh, varieties of cones. Conformation, basically, that just means the shape of the protein, basically, or the, the molecule. Um, shape's a bit different, so it, it reacts with light a bit differently, and therefore it uh, it absorbs different wavelengths uh, at, at you know at slightly different levels and so that that explains why that you've got the three different types of cones that respond differently to the three different um, frequencies of light but what i'm going to mostly talk about is rhodopsin in the cones uh, sorry rhodopsin in the rods uh, I think it's been studied a bit more than the photopsin in the, in the cones, uh, so we know a bit more about it. But the fundamental process is almost exactly the same. There's just maybe some minor differences uh, w- with the precise um, metabolic pathways and so on. But that's not so important for our purposes. We just want to get a, a basic idea of how it works. Okay, so now that we've talked about the rods and the cones in uh, gory detail, I'm now going to talk about rhodopsin in more detail. So remember, we're specifically talking about the rods now because rhodopsin is found in those stacked membranes inside the rods, but cones, very similar uh, principles. Okay, so rhodopsin is a chromoprotein, which means it's a protein. Uh, remember from biochemistry basics what a protein is, just amino acids uh, chained together and uh, wound up in an interesting structure. Uh, it's a protein linked to a pigment-carrying substance. Okay, a pigment is a substance that selectively absorbs some particular wavelength or wavelengths of light. So basically anything that you can, anything that you can see that's not white, or that's not completely white or transparent, uh, has some pigments in it. Pigment just means that it absorbs some colors preferentially, and so you can sort of see it. So paints all contain pigments, for example. So any color paint is going to have to have some, pi- some pigment that, um, preferentially absorbs all of the colors other than the one you want to see. So yellow paint has to absorb all of the colors apart from yellow and reflect yellow so you can see. So, so pigments are all over the place. So, so it's a fancy word for something that's actually quite common. When we say rhodopsin is a chromoprotein, rhodopsin is a molecule, well, a big complex molecule, which is comprised of a protein bit and a pigment bit. The protein bit is called opsin, hence you know, rhodopsin, and the, the non-protein bit, the pigment bit, is called retinol. So rhodopsin is opsin plus retinol, sort of bonded together. Now, the opsin, the protein bit, is just a bundle of seven transmembrane, transmembrane helices connected to each other by protein loops. Uh, so what's all that mean? So transmembrane just means it goes across the membrane. So remember, we've got these uh, uh, inter- intramembrane discs, and uh, basically studded in those, across the membrane, is this opsin molecule. And the opsin molecule is comprised of helices. So that's basically, you know, like the double helix in a DNA. It's just a particular shape that uh, that proteins can, can have as part of their structure. You've got a bunch of these helices that are all connected together, and that are, well, seven of them exactly. Uh, they're all connected together, and they're all part of the same protein. They're all part of opsin, but they're just studded sort of separately into uh, the, the membrane into the interior membrane. Uh, the precise structure of that's not that important. I just wanted to give an idea of what the, what the molecule is like. So it's a, you know, a bunch of helices connected together, studded in the membrane. Uh, bonded to the opsin is is the retinal, which sort of lies horizontally with relation to the membrane. So if you can imagine the membrane goes across, studded in that membrane, we've got opsin, which sort of pokes out at either end, and that's comprised of its seven little uh, helicy components, but they're all sort of bunched together. And then sort of bonded to the opsin, but sort of lying horizontally underneath it, so inside the... Um, Inside the pancake membrane, internal membrane, is the retinal, is the um, which is the actual pigment molecule. So the the outer the outer disc, or remember this, this uh, pancake in, in a membrane contains thousands of these uh, rhodopsin molecules. So they're all studded at different locations around the membrane. Okay, so that's the structure uh, of the whole rod thing. So we've got a rod with a sort of a rod-shaped protrusion of the membrane. Within that, there are a bunch of essentially stacked internal membranes, um, studded. Inside these internal membranes are uh, each of them, each of the membranes containing thousands of these rhodopsin molecules that, that stick out um, on either side of the internal membrane. And each rhodopsin molecule in turn is comprised of the opsin bit, which is a protein that's actually in the membrane, and the retinal bit, which is the is the non-protein pigment part of, of the rhodopsin uh, chromoprotein, uh, which sort of sits just inside the, the membrane disc. Hopefully, you can sort of picture that. Now we're finally going to talk about the actual process of phototransduction. Which basic, which just refers to the process of converting light into an electrical signal. So how does this occur? 
the first thing that has to happen is a light, so a, a light photon. A photon comes in, it's refracted by the, the cornea and the, and the lens and the so on, and it falls on some region of the retina. In particular, I mean, photons are quite small, so they're going to fall on a particular cell of the retina, and even more specifically than that, they're going to fall on a particular photoreceptor molecule of that cell. Obviously, if they fall on a part of the cell that does not contain a photoreceptor molecule, well, they won't be detected. They won't do anything interesting. You'll only detect the photon if it actually falls on the right part. If it, if it makes, sort of directly falls, like literally makes contact, in so much as we can talk about you know, contact in a sort of a atomic level here. But basically, think about, like, the photon literally comes in and hits the particular rhodopsin molecule that's, uh, that's just sitting inside the membrane. What happens? So, the photon... Uh, has to hit the retinal itself, that is the pigment part, you know, that's sitting inside the membrane. It's got to hit that uh, in order for phototransduction to occur. So it's a fairly, sort of a narrow target, but remember there's lots of photons coming in, like, I don't know, trillions, heaps of them. So some of them are going to hit the retinal um, in various different of these uh, rhodopsin molecules sitting around the, uh, the retina. When the photon, and the photon, of course, also has to be of the correct wavelength of frequency, otherwise it, it won't do anything. But so, so when a, when a photon of the correct frequency hits the retinal, the retinal undergoes isomerization, uh, which just basically means a change in its shape. Basically, the, the technical term for that is it changes from an 11 cis to an all trans configuration, which essentially just means that it goes from being slightly bent to straight, if you want to think about it like that. So it's, it's a bit bent, the photon hits it, it, uh, it undergoes isomerization, changes shape, and it becomes straight. Now, why is that significant? Well, because it's it's no longer bent, it no longer fits inside the binding site that it has to opsin. It needed to be bent to fit in quite properly. It doesn't really fit anymore. And so what happens is that opsin itself undergoes a conformational change to some other protein. We don't need to know its name. Um, I mean, it's the same thing. It's structurally the same. It's just shaped a bit differently because the retinal sort of um, stuffed up the shape that it was in before, and so now it changes its shape. The, the new protein that, that opsin uh, changes into, or just the conformational form of it, is unstable and splits into two. So basically, basically now what happens is the opsin and the retinal split apart because previously they fit together nicely, but now that they've changed shape, they don't fit together properly, so they split apart. Okay, so now we've got opsin and retinal going their separate ways. There, well, they're not quite opsin and retinal anymore. So now we've got opsin and retinal, which are disassociated from each other. They've gone their separate ways. The opsin sits around, basically, it's still embedded in the membrane. The retinal floats away into the cytoplasm. Why do we care about that? What relevance does that have to actually vision transduction? Well. It's what happens afterwards that's uh, that's important. So the opsin that's still sitting around in the membrane is now no longer attached to the retinal, and so that basically allows it to bind to something else. Specifically, it binds to a regulatory protein called transducin. The transducin was just sort of sitting around inside the membrane or nearby before the photon came and uh, began this whole process. But now that the retinal's moved away and the uh, opsin's changed its conformation a bit, the transducin is able to bind to the opsin. And why is that important? Well, because this causes, this binding changes, again, changes slightly changes the shape of the transducin, which is this regulatory protein that was sitting around, and it causes the transducin, the transducin, oh, here, to uh, dissociate from a GDP molecule w with which it was bound, and instead bind a GTP molecule. Now, what the, these are just energy molecules, it doesn't really matter what they are, but the point is, the transducin binds to the opsin, which is now free from the retinal, and as a result of that, the transducin itself becomes unstable and breaks up into two subunits, called the alpha and the beta subunits, I think, but um, again, that doesn't matter too much. The transducin bonds to the opsin, breaks up into two, because again, it becomes unstable in its, uh, in its existing conformation. Why do we care about that? Well, it's because of what happens next. So we're, get, we're going to get there in the end. It, it, it's like many um, essentially metabolic or um, protein pathways, secondary messenger pathways in the human body. It's sort of very indirect. It's like, why are you doing it this really weird way? But that's how evolution works. We've broken up the transducin protein into, its, uh, into two components. One of these components binds to and activates a photodiesterase, which is an enzyme that breaks phosphate bonds. Phosphate bonds are just a particular type of bonds that are found in many uh, biological systems or molecules, uh, which, again, had been floating around in the cytoplasm. So this, this phosphodiesterase was floating around, and then when it came across the alpha subunit of the previous uh, transducin protein, it binds together and so that it can now break the uh, phosphate bonds. Previously, it was inactivated. Now, it's changed shape so that it has been activated. That's very important because now the, the phosphodiesterase begins to break down a, another molecule called uh, CGMP. Again, it doesn't really matter what this other molecule is, but the CGMP, CGMP is crucial because the rods contain sodium channels uh, in the external membrane. So this is not the um, sort of pancake internal membranes that I've been talking about that contain the, the um, rhodopsin. These are the, this is the actual external membrane of the cell itself. This is studded with sodium channels. I mean, it has many types of ion channels, and we talked about this in the previous episode about neurons and synapses. But um, among those are CGMP-gated sodium channels. Now, normally these ch these channels are open, which means sodium channel, uh, which means sodium ions are free to to move uh, into and out of the um, the cell. 
However, phosphodiesterase breaks down the CGMP, and these sodium channels need the CGMP in order to stay open because they're CGMP-gated, which means the CGMP has to come along and bind to the, to the ion channel, and without, without that binding, it will close. So phosphodiesterase breaks down the CGMP, which in turn means the sodium channels close. When the sodium channels close... This causes a hyperpolarization of the cell. So remember, there's a resting potential. This is from the neurons and synapses episode. There's a resting potential of the cell of roughly negative 70 millivolts. So there's a small negative charge in the cell as a whole. Hyperpolarization means the cell becomes more negatively charged. And that will happen. So in other words, the cell will become hyperpolarized if you stop sodium ions from entering through entering the cell through through the membrane because sodium ions are positively charged. So when those are coming in, that helps to maintain a, a more positive charge of, of the cell. You stop those from coming in, the cell is going to become hyperpolarized because you're keeping out these positive charges. And the CGMP-gated sodium channels are crucial for allowing those sodium ions to come in, thereby maintaining the, the resting potential. You close off the uh, CGMP-gated sodium channels, you stop the sodium ions from coming in, you cause the cell to hyperpolarize. Hyperpolarization of the cell, in turn, causes the voltage-gated calcium channels to close. So these voltage-gated calcium channels are just other channels that instead of being uh, gated by CGMP, they, they um, open and close according to the voltage of the cell, uh, the, the charge, basically, the charge concentration. So when the cell becomes hyperpolarized, these voltage-gated calcium channels close because basically they only stay open so long as the uh, polarization of the cell doesn't become too negative. When it gets too negative, they shut down. The calcium ions can't come into the cell. When the calcium level in, this, in the photoreceptor cell drops below a certain level, the amount of the neurotransmitted glutamate that is released by the cell also drops. This is because the calcium is required in order to um, cause the glutamate-containing vesicles to fuse with the cell membrane and therefore dump their contents sorry, into the synapse. And that, that in turn, that the change in the amount of glutamate that these photo, photoreceptors are putting out, in turn, basically leads to... Um, greater potentials in um, in the cells that follow. They don't actually directly lead to action potentials, which is, is just a little bit odd, but we'll get to that in a moment. But basically, this dumping out, or actually, this, this change in the amount of neurotransmitters that you're dumping out is the crucial thing that we want to generate. This is the, the final stage in the transduction, basically, because once you get the, the neurotransmitters changing the amount of um, action potentials, essentially, that, that's occurring in the, in the neurons, that is the type of information that the brain understands. So getting to this stage is sort of the whole goal of the process. So we start with photon hitting the retinal and uh, changing its conformation and end up with a change in the amount of neurotransmitters that we've got. That whole process is called transduction. So it's quite complicated. I'm probably thinking I lost a number of you in, the, in this uh, description. So I'm going to go through it again and, and try and uh, summarize it so that, so that we can get a picture of what's going on here. So remember, the first stage is that the Photon comes in, hits the retinal, which is the um, the pigment molecule, changes its shape. Retinal no longer fits into um, the opsin, which is the, the protein part. As a result, the opsin and the retinal disassociate. And then what we, what basically happens is a number of stages, sort of secondary messenger, sort of a cascade of uh, chemical reactions occurring. One thing bonding to another thing, which bonds to another thing. Eventually, that ends up with the phosphodiesterase enzyme is activated and begins breaking down CGMP. When it breaks down CGMP, the sodium channels close. When the sodium channels close, sodium ions stop coming in the membrane. This causes hyperpolarization of the cell, which in turn means that the calcium ion channels now close. So there's two types of ion channels here. The first are the sodium ion channels. These are CGMP gated. We shut these down by activating phosphodiesterase, which is an enzyme that breaks down CGMP. CGMP is not around anymore, and therefore you can't unlock the gate, basically sodium ion channel gate, so this, the sodium channels close. That hyperpolarizes the cell and leads to the, the second type of ion channels closing, which are the uh, voltage-gated calcium ion channels. And this is actually the, the crucial part, because it's the calcium that is essential for the to cause the vesicles that are also just sitting around inside the, um, the photoreceptor cell. These vesicles, which contain glutamate, a neurotransmitter, um, require calcium in order to fuse with the external membrane and dump out the neurotransmitters. When we've got no calcium, because the voltage-gated ion channel's closed off, the vesicles stop fusing with the membrane, and the cell stops dumping out glutamate, or at least reduces the amount that it dumps out. It's important to understand that the uh, photoreceptor cells themselves do not produce action potentials. So this is not like your standard neuron, where you get inputs through the dendrites, and you get graded potentials, which eventually, if they cross the threshold, lead to an action potential, and then that causes the vesicles to uh, fuse with the membrane, dumping out the neurotransmitter, and then causing greater potentials in the postsynaptic neuron. That's not happening here. All we've got is essentially greater potentials, which eventually cause a change in the amount of glutamate that you're dumping out. There's no actual action potential that occurs here. So that, that's a bit different. 
So th this entire process is basically just a way of changing the amount of glutamate that we're dumping out into the synapse. In order to change the amount of glutamate that we're dumping out, we need to change the amount of calcium that's sitting around because calcium is what causes it, you know, binds with the um, with the vesicle membranes and causes the glutamate to be dumped out. In order to change the amount of calcium that we have around in the cell, we need to close the voltage-gated calcium channels. In order for those to close, we've got to hyperpolarize the cell. Well, how do we hyperpolarize the cell? We do that by shutting down the sodium uh, ion channels, which are bringing positive charges into the the cell and therefore stopping it from being hyperpolarized. How do we shut down the sodium channels? We get phosphodiesterase to, to be activated and break down the CGMP molecules that are allowing the sodium channels to be, to be opened up because they're CGMP gated. How do we get phosphodiesterase to be activated? Well, that's where we get that uh, alpha subunit of the transducing, uh, the transducing protein. We get that bit of the transducing protein which is able to bind to and activate the phosphodiesterase. How do we get that alpha subunit of the transducin molecule? Well, we need opsin to bind to uh, transducin in order to break it up, in order to break up the transducin into a couple of uh, subunits, and then the subunit activates the phosphodiesterase, the phosphodiesterase breaks down the CGMP, the CGMP gated sodium channels close, and that leads to hyperpolarization, and then the, the amount of the hyperpolarization leads to the calcium gated ion channels to close, which therefore causes the uh, vesicles not to fuse with the membrane, and therefore the glutamate is not dumped out anymore into the synapse. Jumping right back to the start again, how do we get that transducin to be broken up into the different parts by the opsin molecule? Well, we've got to get the opsin molecule uh, by itself. And to do that, we have to get it to be separated from the retinal, because uh, uh, because to start off with, the opsin and the retinal are connected together into this complex, which we call rhodopsin. How do we get the opsin molecule by itself so that it, uh, so that it can bind with the transducin and therefore um, activate the phosphodiesterase and so on? How do we get the opsin by itself? We need to change the conformation of the retinal, because once we change the conformation of the retinal, change the shape of that retinal, uh, the rhodopsin complex will be unstable and break apart. How do we change the conformation of the retinal? That happens when a photon falls onto the retinal and changes its conformation, because basically it puts it up into high energy state, is this important thing about it. And so that's where the photon comes back into it. That's where the light comes back into it. The photon hits the retinal, changes its shape, and then we get this big cascade of events, which ends up with the concentration of calcium inside the cytoplasm declining, which means that the glutamate-containing vesicles no longer are fusing with the cell membrane, and so we're not dumping out glutamate into the synapse. Okay, so I'm going to leave it there for this episode. We'll pick up on uh, with the rest of the story by discussing the remaining layers of the retina and then moving on to processing of the visual information in the brain and the lateral geniculate nucleus and V1 and, and so forth in uh, future episodes. It looks like we're probably going to have two more episodes, maybe three more. This podcast has already gone over long, so I'll dispense with most of the usual things that I say now. One thing, though, that I did wanted to mention was that uh, my podcast was recently uh, mentioned on... A, another science podcast, which some of you may have heard before or may not, called The Pseudoscientists. Uh, that's a podcast run by some friends of mine. Uh, in that podcast, they talk about science news topics, the role of science in society, and how science is sometimes misunderstood, all sorts of things like that. I think um, probably most listeners of my show, if you're interested in science, you'll, you'll like that podcast as well. So go check it out. Just type the pseudoscientists, pseudoscientists being one word, into Google and you should be able to find them fairly easily. So, on that note, thanks for listening and I'll talk to you next time.